Hey everyone, this is Chad Harms, the pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thank you for taking some time to listen to our latest sermon, a sermon about how God will make all things new. It will play in just a minute, but before it does, I want to invite you to be prayed for. Our church has a prayer team that consistently prays for people. Sometimes those people are in our church, sometimes they're not. But anyone who asks for prayer gets prayed for. I don't know who will hear this sermon, but I do know that it will be people all over the country and to some degree around the world. If I know one thing about people, it is that they have fears, failures, and struggles. In the midst of all that, I believe that God responds to our prayers. We may not get everything we want, but God does work all things for the good of those who love Him, specifically in response to prayer. So here's what I'm inviting you to do. Go to creekside.me and click on Get Prayer. It'll take you to a form, submit the form, and we will pray for you. Again, it's creekside.me. I hope you'll take me up on this offer. Again, thank you for taking time to listen to this sermon. I hope that it will help you learn and live more fully for the glory of God. In fact, I'm praying that it will. We today are continuing a series called All Things New. This is our final series in the book of Revelation. For those of you that have not been around, I've been preaching along with some other people, through the book of Revelation since October 1st, I believe. And we're down to like three or four, three or four sermons left in this book. We're, we're all the way into the last chapter. Uh, we, are, we are moving quickly towards the end, but there are some very important things for us left to see. And in this final series, what we're doing is we're really talking about our heavenly state and what's going to make it Great. So much of the book is about judgment, or at least it feels like it's about judgment. Um, but this part is really just like the happy part. We've made it all the way to the, the happiest of happy parts. And we get to talk about what will make our eternal experience great if we're Christians. If we're Jesus followers, this is what we have to look forward to. And let me just read you three. Uh, there will be no more Satan or evil. That sounds pretty good to me. Like you just take all the evil out of the world and it's, I think it's a pretty good place to live and it's gonna be even beyond that. We, we've seen that there's no more crying or mourning or pain. Can you imagine? Uh, probably not. We struggle to even imagine, but how wonderful life would be if we never mourned anything, if we never felt any pain, if there was no reason to cry tears of sadness. And then we saw that there will be no more death. Now, I wasn't here last week, and I have not listened to Matt's sermon, so you saw something else last week that I'm sure every one of you remembers, but I have no idea what it is. Uh, and so whatever Matt said last week, add that to the list. And then today we're going to add another thing to the list, and that is this idea that, the, that maybe we would not care about as much on first glance. Like, we all love the idea of no evil, no pain, no sadness, no death. But this one, we may, just, we may just overlook this one if you're just kind of reading through the book of Revelation, but it's so important. It's this, no more curse. I, I could have called this the no more series as well, all things new, but part of what makes everything new is that there's no more of this bad stuff. And, and one of those things is the curse. I was listening to an episode of a podcast uh, this last week. I think it was just this last week. And, and this this podcast story uh, was about was about this guy who who had this crazy story 
about being on this boat. Him and his buddies, uh, there was just a bunch of friends. They were roommates, friends, and they decided they would buy a boat. They live in Boston, and they're like, hey, this is going to be magnificent. You know, we'll have our own yacht. And uh, there's a bunch of like poor college kids, I get the impression. And so like, we're going to get a boat, you know, we'll be high society here in Boston, and everybody will love our boat. And and so they they plan to have this this ceremony to kind of christen the boat. And and so they they show up and and uh, and they they do all these things that they know you do at a boat. I go to every now and then a a, a barge launch because my brother in law is a welder of barges, and so we go to barge launches. And I've experienced a little bit of actually it's a, probably this on a grand scale breaking the champagne on the on the side of the boat, and there's bagpipes usually at the one we're at. And so they have their own small version of this. So this boat that is supposed to seat six people, as it turns out. And immediately, this big party they're supposed to have, it starts raining on their party. And what the, the guy says is that they, they actually realize later that they did three things that go against the superstition around boats. Uh, you're not supposed to rename a boat. You're not supposed to do the champagne thing if it's not a brand new boat. And there was one other thing that they weren't supposed to do, you know, that superstition says they're not supposed to do. And so this guy says, you know, it probably was just cursed from the beginning. And so the next day, it's not raining anymore, and they're like, let's go, let's go out on this boat. And, and so they go out on this boat, and, and the guy that's kind of leading up this party, he, he says, he says um, to the people, and he doesn't remember saying this, as it turns out, when they interviewed him all these years later, but he says, hey, I, I called the people in charge of boats, and, and they said, it doesn't matter how many people you have on the boat as long as there's enough life jackets, which is not true. Um, like, it's not a true thing at all. And so they get out into, I don't know, the Boston Harbor or wherever they're going, and, uh, and they're just hanging out. They're having a good time. And there's 10 people on this boat, by the way, um, maybe 12, but you're supposed to have six. And all of a sudden, the boat starts to take on water. And it's, it's sinking. It's slowly sinking, thankfully. And, and they, they're one life jacket short, by the way. And so they're out there with no plan, and they don't have any way of calling, and, and they're just stuck. And eventually, uh, they get rescued. But, but this guy talks frequently in this story about how basically they cursed the boat. And here's, here's for us. The reason I bring up that story and tell you that story is because sometimes we feel in our lives like we might be cursed. People say that, right? Like people say things like that. I think I'm just cursed when something goes wrong. I get a flat tire. I think I must be cursed. And when we say that, in some ways, we're, we're right. And it's not because of something superstitious. It's because of what the Bible teaches us. Genesis 3, 17. This is after Adam and Eve, they've sinned. They've eaten from a tree that God told them not to eat of. They've immediately become ashamed. And then God is telling them what's going to happen because of it. And it says to Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. Now, it's going to be hard work to eat. That's kind of what he's telling Adam here, but... The reality is, is an extension of that curse. We all feel it. Life is just kind of hard, right? Like we feel this curse 
in just about everything we do. When we, when we think about the difficulties of work, well, here's where it began. When we think about the struggles that we face, well, here's where it began. When we think about how hard it can be in families as we just prayed about, well, here's where it all started. We live under a curse. We just call it life, right? Like we just say, well, life happens, it's difficult and all those things, but, but it is difficult and all those things because we live under a curse that came into the world after people started sinning. And so, you know, like that boat, right? Like they said, we did all these things wrong. Well, it wasn't the superstitious things they did wrong. It was not having enough life jackets and having too many people. I mean, they did a bunch of things they weren't supposed to do. And we, just like that, all do a bunch of things that we're not supposed to do. It's called sin. And because sin exists in the world, we live under a curse. And in our passage today, what is so great is that we see, we see really the reverse of the curse in our heavenly state. Now, one author said that, that the section we're going to look at today, which is just a few verses, could be split up into kind of a five-section outline, even though it's just a few verses. And I, I thought what he said was really good, so I just want to read you the five sections. The river of life, the tree of life, no curse, a new relationship with God and the Lamb, and then the conclusion. And so here's how it starts. Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 and 2. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. Now, it's interesting because the, the, this river that's flowing, it actually uh, kind of reflects the language of the city being crystal-like itself. And so I, I just think that that's a really beautiful visual. I don't really even know how to visualize it. And when you look at drawings, it, Google like these things in Revelation sometimes. People do pretty good art. Like there's pretty good art out there around the book of Revelation. But I just like, for whatever reason, this, this crystal river flowing in this crystal city, I think there's something really magnificent about that. And I think that's the point is for us to go, wow, this sounds magnificent. But it's interesting because here the scene is centered at this street or on this street that's in the middle of the city. And it, it actually draws our minds back to something that happened in Revelation chapter 11, verses 8 and 9. And in that story, a much less happy story, there's these two prophets of God and they're killed by the people and their bodies lay in the street for days. And it almost seems as we go one half of the book of Revelation and there's this incredible scene of death. And then you go to the second half and you kind of come to the conclusion of the second half and there's this incredible scene of life. I think it's intentional. I think it's meant to say, hey, you remember that persecution, that killing that happened of God's prophets, God's people? Well, now all that's over and this city will forever be a city of life. Now, the river, the river in the middle of all this is, is, is something that reminds us of the book of Ezekiel, like much of the book of Revelation. Uh, Ezekiel 47, 1 through 12 talks about the river, and you can read that on your own. We'll, we'll talk about a couple of verses from that in just a second. But I actually want to point your attention to just a couple of things that, that John, uh, the author of the book of Revelation, he talks about in the gospel of John, because I think it, it, it really what we're seeing is, is uh, the epitome of it, the final, the final state that, that Jesus really 
promises while he walks on earth. Uh, you, you know this story is the woman at the well, John 4 and verses 13 and 14. I'm gonna read those to you. But Jesus is, he's out and there's this woman who, who is, you know, had a bunch of husbands and she's living with a guy who's not her husband. She's doing everything wrong. Uh, and, and, and Jesus meets her at this well and they have this crazy conversation. And, 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 and he, you know, the, he says, can you give me a drink of water? And she's like, Hey, you don't have anything to draw with. And he's like, you know, if you knew who I was, you'd ask me for water. And then she's like, I want water. And Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And in our passage today, we see that the completion of that. I mean, we get glimpses of that when the Holy Spirit comes into our life. And in fact, in John 7 at the Festival of Tabernacles or the Festival of Booths, that's Sukkot, which we celebrate in the fall. Jesus talks about water in connection to the Holy Spirit. And so it's clear in the book of John that in some ways, Jesus and accepting Jesus brings us this satisfaction to our souls that we all long for when the Holy Spirit comes into our lives. But we know that it's not complete, that the curse still exists, that we still labor and toil and struggle along. But in our passage, we see the finality of it all. And there's this perfect river that brings the provision and the presence of God that we so desperately long for in our lives right now. I just, I just thought about this this week, but I think it's so cool that in every way, this nameless woman that Jesus met in the well is feeling and experiencing the fullness of the promise that Jesus made to her on that sunny, hot afternoon at a well a couple thousand years ago. And someday we'll get to experience that too. And then, and then it goes on to say, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. 12 is a really important number in the Bible as a whole, uh, specifically though in the book of Revelation. Uh, there, uh, it's clear here that the 12 crops, they respond to the 12 months. And, and I'll just pause there and say, think about that for a second, because think of how cyclical our ability to have food is. Now, we know how to, how to process things and can things and, you know, have food year round. We do that, right? We can refrigerate things. We can do all that. But really, if you think about just the natural world, it's cyclical. Like stuff grows at certain times and then you know, if you didn't prepare ahead of time, you go into winter, then you're not eating anything in the winter. That's just the way it works. Like you have crops and if you don't make sure that you can keep those crops and ration those crops through the winter, then you die in the winter. That's just what it looks like. And so here we see this beautiful thing where every month one of these trees is producing fruit. And it's just meant to show us like, hey, the curse is going to be no more. You'll have food aplenty. You'll have perfect provision. Uh, but that number 12, it demonstrates that even further. There are 12 stars in the book of Revelation. There are 12 gates. There are 12 angels. Uh, there are 12 foundations on the wall. There are 12 apostles and 12 pearls. And on top of that, we have 12,000 sealed people from the 12 tribes of Israel. The measurements of the temple can be split into 12s. 12 seems to be, by the way, a number of completion. It's a number of 
completion. And so here we see something about something being complete. What is it? I think the answer, I've already hinted at it, is that we will have a perfect, perfectly complete, we will live in a perfectly complete state of provision and satisfaction. We will no longer have to labor and toil and work and strive and fight to feel the satisfaction that we so desperately long for. It will be there for us for eternity. Now, this tree and this river, they're not, it's not like it just comes out of nowhere, this imagery. It's meant to bring us back to something very specific. And really what it's meant to bring us back to is the Garden of Eden. That's what's happening here. Uh, you can read in Genesis 2 and Ezekiel 47, 1 through 12, this same imagery. But let me, let me read to you Genesis 2, 8 through 10. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east of Eden. God created the world and he puts this garden there. And there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and a river watering the garden flowed from Eden. You see what's happening in Revelation chapter 22? It's saying, hey, you know about the beginning of the Bible when God created the world, it was perfect. Man and woman, Adam and Eve, they lived in complete perfection and complete fullness and complete satisfaction with no shame, no sorrow, no toil, no labor. I mean, they just, they just showed up and they got to eat and be happy and satisfied. Everything was good. Everything was perfect. Everything was right. And then they sinned. I read to you about that. The curse is put upon earth. And then the rest of the Bible happens, uh, you know, and all, all the things that would happen. There's a promise that a guy named, uh, that a guy would come and set things right. We know that to be Jesus. Jesus comes. He dies for our sins, rises again. And the Bible tells us it goes from there on from there to say, if you believe in him, then you will have salvation. You can come to Jesus. You can have salvation. And out of that, you can look forward to something better after you die than what you have in this life. And then we move all the way to the book of Revelation where it completes the story for us. And it says, hey, here's what you have to look forward to, a return to the garden that it all started in or to a state that is like the garden that it all started in. There will be no more curse. You will be perfectly satisfied. You will be full and whole and healthy and happy and you will be with God. Ezekiel 47, 6 through 7 and 12 says this, then he led me back to the bank of the river. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river, fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit, fruit fail. Every month they will bear fruit because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their flu, fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. It's a promise of what's to come. And so in Genesis, we see this great state. And in Revelation, we see this, this wonderful promise that we will return to that state. And in the middle of it, we see a promise that it is coming, it is coming, it's gonna happen. And we live with anticipation, I hope, that someday we will live with the state of the garden where there is no more curse. And did you notice the end there? Leaves for healing. So what Revelation 22.2 says, the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. We will be totally 
and utterly healed. I won't have you raise your hand, but I think we could all, we, we could all uh, raise our hands to the question that I'm going to ask you, but who feels like some part of your life is hurting or broken or scarred or wounded? We would all put our hands up to that, right? Like there are, are parts of our lives and our families and, you know, our, our, our emotional health and, you know, even, I mean, before you're, you're done being a kid, right? Like you've been wounded. And, and you're, you've been wounded by your parents' decisions and by your friends, and you've been wounded. Like, even when you're a little kid, you're wounded. My kids have been wounded already. Not just, like, physically. We've actually done pretty good at that. They have not been to the emergency room for any big injuries. So we've actually, oh, I don't know if I was superstitious. I would be like this right now. I'm not. But, um, but, like, but you will be wounded in your soul before you're, you know, five years old. We all can tell that story in some way. And, and the wounds will keep coming as we move through this life. And it's because we live under a curse, because we're all cursed. I'm cursed, you're cursed, we're cursed. And what Revelation 22 is saying to us, what God is saying to us through Revelation 22 is that someday the curse will go away. And we'll talk about that more specifically. But part of that will be perfect provision and perfect fulfillment. And part of it will be the healing that you so desperately long for. I mean, think about how our world tries to find healing. Like we go to counseling. People go to counseling. That's good. I'm not saying that that's bad, but, but I think we all realize that's a, that's a bit of a Band-Aid, right? And people try to mask it through some of their addictions. They try to, you know, cover it up. Another Band-Aid, like I can just drink this away or, you know, sleep this away or play video games enough that I don't think about it anymore. They just try to mask it. And, and so you look around and, and man, there's no healing apart from Jesus. But those of us that are Christians, we know that even when Jesus heals us, those scars still remain. But someday we will have perfect, perfect healing because the curse will be no more. Now, I, I read a book by uh, Tim Keller. Some of you will know who Tim Keller is. He's a pastor in New York. He's a retired pastor, actually, in New York. And he wrote this book called Sinner Church. And, um, and one of the things that he said that I really remember from that book is he was talking about uh, this, this scene. And uh, this is a little bit of a parenthetical statement for you, but I like it, and I, I've always liked it. But he talked about how how heaven will be a city. And he kind of goes at people because he's a city, he's a New Yorker, right? He kind of goes at people that, that hate cities and every, you know, we're so negative. And we can be like that as, as people who live in the Portland metro area. We can be really negative towards cities now. Um, but he says, heaven will be like a city. And I like that because I'm a city person. I'm, a, I, uh, I'm more urban than rural in my makeup. I like the idea of heaven being a city. But at the same time, we have this city come down, and we also have this wonderful picture of a garden. And there's something in me that loves. It was one of the things I love about Wilsonville, by the way. I can be in the city, and I can go over a hill and be in the country, and I think that's magnificent. I think that's so cool about the area in which we live and do church. And heaven's going to be a city and a garden. And that's my parenthetical for you because that, that's exciting to me. I like that idea. I like the idea of having great coffee shops and great trees surrounding me. In fact, in Arkansas, Northwest Arkansas, which some of you know, it's one of my favorite places in this country. One of the, one of the coolest things uh, is you can go to Kohler Mountain. It's one of the mountain biking capitals 
of, of America. Um, and like people travel from all over our country and probably all over the world to go mountain biking in this park. And, and so you go in this park and there's this paved hiking trail. That's usually how my family hikes. We're on paved, uh, we're paved hiking trails. That's what, that's our hiking. If it's paved, we like that hike. And so we where you go down and you, and you walk a, a pretty fair distance, um, in, you know, and you're just trees and there's a creek that runs by you. And then the, like the destination, there is this cool hip coffee shop called Airstrip Coffee, like in the middle of the forest. And it is one of my happy places on earth. Like when I see people post that I'm connected to in Northwest Arkansas and they post pictures of being there, I just, it makes my day a little worse because I'm like, well, you're there and I'm here, you know, like I want to be there. And, and so like, man, Colder Mountain, that to me is a picture of heaven, a great city kind of thing, feel in the middle of a garden. And so I hope that helps you look forward to heaven a little more. As a Northwesterner, I think we can get a little bit of a picture of that, but it does continue in Revelation 22, 3. No longer will there be any curse. I just want to say it again. I mean, there's the main point. You already gathered that from me, but I, just, I wrote some of these things down and I, I just want to read them. Toil, shame, struggle, pain, sorrow, mourning, crying, sin, depression, mental health issues, suicide, war, famine, allergies, etc., etc., etc. I probably should have put allergies before war, but etc., etc., etc. It'll all be gone because there will be no more curse. But there's this other really cool thing. We have provision and we have wholeness and fullness and healing and health and we have uh, all of these great things but but i don't even think i've said the most important thing yet because because really in this scene at the heart of it all is that there will be no more distance from god i think that's supposed to be the thing that 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 God wants us to, in Revelation 22, be most excited about. L listen to this. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. Now, now a couple of things that are so important about this. First, I think it's so striking that Jesus is still being referred to as the Lamb. For those of you that haven't been with us as we've moved through the book of Revelation, this is, this is the term most frequently used for Jesus in the book of Revelation. And, and it's interesting because in the book, he, he is this, you know, it's, it's, he is described in very glorious terms. He sits on the throne. We, you know, he has crazy descriptions around him that, that point us to his glory and, you know, how awe-inspiring he is. It's not little baby Jesus being born in a manger, you know. It's not the suffering servant that's most often described in the book of Revelation. But at the same time, the title he's given is the Lamb, which calls us back to the fact that he suffered and died on our behalf, that he died as the Passover Lamb, that he is the one who was sacrificed so that our sins might be forgiven, our sins might be taken away. And you would think that as you move into this heavenly scene, maybe, I don't know if you think this, but we might feel as though as we move into the heavenly scene, we're just going to get crowned Jesus, rainbow over his head Jesus, emerald Jesus, Jesus who has fire coming out of his eyes. We might get that Jesus, but still, 
even in the eternal picture that we're looking at. It's the Lamb. It's there to say this to us. Jesus is the one who makes this reality, this future reality possible for you. Even in eternity, even when everything is perfect and the curse is gone, we'll still be looking to him and saying, Jesus, we understand that none of this is possible without your sacrifice. We'll still be telling that old, old story of Jesus and his blood. We'll still be talking about how we were sinners. And and yet, Jesus, despite the fact that we had rejected him, that we had turned our backs on him, that we had made ourselves enemies of him, despite that, he came from heaven to earth and he lived perfectly, lived sinlessly. And at the end of that perfect life, he chose to willingly suffer and die for on our behalf so that we might be forgiven for our sins by simply believing in him and the work that he did on the cross. That's not gonna go away. He'll be all glorious, you know, we'll be worshiping him. He'll be at the center of this magnificent scene of heavenly worship. And yet we'll understand that he is the lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. And all of that continues to show us these other themes that have come up so consistently in the book. And that is that we must view Jesus as the almighty creator and sustainer that rules and reigns over all and as the loving, suffering servant who came to die for all. We must always, and I've talked about this in more than one sermon as we've moved through the book of Revelation, we must always view Jesus as both of those things. We must see him as the creator, sustainer, all glorious God of the universe and as the one who was born of a virgin and suffered and died for our sins. But think about, just think about the closeness that's demonstrated to God here. And that's, that is so beautiful. Listen to Exodus 33, 17 through 20. And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. And then Moses said, this is his big request. Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. Do you notice what it said in verse four? They will see his face. You see, we, we get glimpses of God today. God, if you're a Christian, indwells you. But someday, his presence will be full. We'll be with him. His name will be on our foreheads and we'll look in his face and we'll be at his throne. We will experience God in a perfectly perfect way. It will be unveiled. This is about, in all of its symbolism, it's about being in the perfect presence of God. And I just would wonder if you've ever experienced God in any way that was, you know, different than what happens on a typical Sunday morning. There was ever a moment in your life where you're like, man, I really felt the presence of God. And you look back on that, I hope, and you think, what an awesome, awesome thing that was in my life. And we'll have that infinitely.
It'll be magnify that infinitely when we sit before the throne of Jesus. We will see him face to face. And then it says in Revelation 22, 5, there will be no more night. They will not need the light of the lamp, of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Uh, darkness in John's writings are associated with bad. Uh, darkness is bad. Light is good. It's just the way it is. John 1, 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. John three nineteen. this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. John eight twelve. when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John twelve forty six. I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in the darkness. And so what we read here in the book of Revelation is that simply this, and I love this. It's the most kindergarten way I can probably say, you know, this, but there will be no more bad. That's what it's saying. I love that, right? Like, you know, you won't have to ask, did you have a good day today? Because nobody's going to say, no, it's a bad day. There'll just be no more bad. All the bad will be gone and we'll live in an eternal state of no more bad. You know that stupid shirt that says no bad days? I would never wear that here, but maybe in heaven. Uh, you know, maybe I'll get a no bad days t-shirt when we get to heaven because it will be true in heaven and it won't be true now. And so why does any of this matter for you today, for me today? Why does it matter? First, I want you to remember that you live under the curse. I've talked about that a few times lately or talked about this a few times lately, partly because I've just finished teaching a class on theology at Corbin and and, and so uh, this has been in, in the front of my mind, but, but everybody has a worldview. And one of the questions that everybody has or answers in their worldview is why are things so messed up? And I think we can look around and we can blame the people on the other side of politics and we can, we can blame our family and we can blame, blame, blame. And, and, and some of that gets caught up in what I'm about to say next, definitely. But really at the heart of the things that make this world a mess, at the heart of what is wrong with our world is that we live under a curse. And so remember that, just know that, just think about that, consider that. When you're struggling and toiling and fighting and trying to carry on in your life and it's so hard, it's because we live under the curse. But at the same time, you have to know and remember that the cure for the curse is that someday Jesus is going to return and there will be no more curse. I mean, we don't, I, I just, this kind of ebbs and flows in our, in our church culture. And right now we're in an ebb, I guess, if you will, where, where you know, the church has, can, has in the past had a tendency to be so heavenly minded that it's no earthly good to steal a term that gets thrown around. So heavenly minded that it's no earthly good. But right now, I think maybe that we're, so earthly minded that we're not allowing the idea of heaven to be good for us and our souls. And so we live under the curse and we must long for, we must look forward to the day when the curse will be no more because Jesus will set up our eternal state. We who are Christians can look forward to that and we should look forward to that. And I think it makes us more earthly good to, to speak terribly, but it makes us more earthly good when we long for our kingdom our heavenly kingdom. Knowing that we live under the curse and that Jesus is coming back and that's really the only cure should not compel us to give up, but rather to live more fully for Jesus, to live more fully for him. 
And so if you're not a Christian, become one. And if you are, just be, just like, be like, hey, Jesus is going to make this all better. And so I'm going to devote my life to him. I'm going to live every part of my life for him now because nothing else is going to make it better. Yeah, I think that we think like if we get enough money or if we solve enough of our problems or if we get to the next stage of life or if we can just gain more people's respect, then in some ways we are winning against the curse. Like we, we, can ov- we think we can overcome the curse. We can just do a little bit better and not have to fight or strive anymore. But that's never gonna happen here on this earth. And so live for Jesus and his glory because the only solution is what we'll have someday in eternity. Become a Christian or live more fully for, for Jesus. And then finally, the last thing is just tell someone else that Jesus is the solution to the curse. Everybody you know is struggling in some way. And you, if you're a Christian, should be doing your best to let them know that there's a solution. And his name is Jesus. And someday he will take us. If we believe that he died for us, since he will take us into our eternal state and there will be no more curse. Let me pray that you will. Lord, I thank you that we can look forward to something so magnificent and so glorious. A crystal river and a crystal city, God. What an incredible picture. A crystal city and a crystal river where we get to be in your presence, where we are perfectly provided for, where we have no more fear and no more failure and we are totally healed, God. I thank you that we can look forward to that if we're Christians. But God, I don't know everybody here very well, and I don't know the people who are watching online. I don't know the people who will listen later to my sermon, God. And so I ask for them, if they have not come to believe that you died for their sins and came back from the dead, then I pray that you would compel them, call them, God, draw them to you today. Help them to believe that and to commit their lives to you so that they too can look forward to this. And for those of us who are Christians, God, I pray that we would be more excited, that we would grow ever more excited for the day when the curse is no more. And God, I pray that as we grow more excited for that, we, we would begin to store more of our treasure in heaven. God, we would strive to serve you, God, more fully because we know that what we do here, God, is never going to be able to overcome the curse, but is only maybe going to make us feel a little better, but that someday it'll all be perfect. And so help us, God, compel us to be more excited about that day when you take us to be in our heavenly home. I pray all of these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.